and welcome to another episode of Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating the very finest video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn, and I'm joined, as always, by my childhood friend, Chris Dow. Ian Deedly Doodly. And my adulthood friend, Minty Booth. Chocolate raisin, they doodly. And we are discussing our all-time top 100 video games. This week, we have our number 59s. But before we do that, it's time to wind our way down a saffron path in the company of a whimpering feline, a witless farmyard effigy, a callous metal mortal, and an Africa-loving fluffy ruff. For we're about to pay a visit... To the Quizard of Oz. <laughs> <sighs> the score is currently 2018 yes, to Chris. it bloody is. Oh, Minty. Come on, mate. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting them right, just not very quickly. Primal Rage for the Super Nintendo falls into which gaming genre? Beat em up. Yeah, it's correct. <sighs> I think it's a fighting game. <sighs> There's only so many things I can do in post-production, Minty. <laughs> It's a really bad fighting uh, game as well. You, you, uh, you're big dinosaurs and you scrap it out. It's not very good. You don't just show off that you know it, Chris. Oh, no, I'm sorry. There we go. Chris is three ahead now, Minty. So what? So you, if you get the next three right, you'll be level. <laughs> oh, oh, that's better. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, let's do that. So what have we been playing this week? Chris? I've been playing not too much because I've been extremely busy with work this week, uh, but I found a little bit of time to play another Apple Arcade game mm-hmm. that I don't think I've mentioned to you so far, but it's one called Grindstone. Ah, oh, yes. Good game. Yeah, it's it's really good. It's like for anyone who's not seen it or for anyone who can't access it because it's obviously on Apple Arcade only, I think at the moment, maybe PC as well, but I'm, I'm not sure. But it's basically, it's a grid-based puzzle game. And in each stage, you've got to try and plot a path across the grid of bad guys like every space is filled up with an enemy and your line between them has to follow their type or color unless you hit like a special color changing item which then lets you kind of extend your route as it were and it starts really simply but very quickly after a few stages you then have to start considering where your path is going to end each turn as certain enemies then will attack if they're adjacent to you and become aggressive as well as kind of like other items or or weapons or armor and things you can apply to your character to you know help you help you get through these stages but it's got a really nice sort of risk reward thing where you want to be making as long a chain as possible because every 10 in a chain you generate one of these little color changing gems to to improve your your next route as it were whilst at the same time obviously not wanting to land next to someone that's going to injure you and the more i've played it like it's been something i've played for just a little bit of time before bed each day there's there's a huge amount of depth hidden within what feels like a really quickly accessible concept and uh, it's it's really good fun, really good fun. And um, I've been playing it on an iPad, but I think it would probably work probably work better on a phone where you've just you know you can do a level here and there. But yeah, really really nice. So I've still been having a really good time playing Nino Cooney. I'm a few more hours in, and I'm getting deep into the familiar system. I've seen it before. <laughs> no, um, but I've also had time to play a little bit of Ukulele and the Impossible Lair. Oh yeah, you were going to tell us about that. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's really good. Much in the way that ukulele obviously draws on the same sort of nostalgia and familiarity as those the classic 3D platformer games from the N64. This does very much the same with, well, just Donkey Kong Country. Yeah. And whilst it does that very, very well, it doesn't feel very original. But then loads of games try and rip off games like Donkey Kong Country and don't do it well uh, so they have done it very very well which is obviously some of them are the same people that made it so it's totally understandable mm. it's very good it's very it's quite challenging it's got some good unlock systems and some 
other bits and bobs the the way that the levels are linked together it's been sort of described as almost like zelda like the way that the levels are linked together in this overworld and and i don't think that's i mean it's really it's not i mean people said oh it's donkey kong country mixed with the legend of zelda it's 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 not that you're just not going from one level to the next like you would in say mario with a, a menu system there's an overworld linking them together and it, it's much more akin to something like the overworld in mario and rabbit's kingdom battle okay so the stages are linked together with some overworld bits and some puzzles and some exploration and stuff like that and it is it's it's really good it's really good fun and really interesting it's a lot more interesting obviously doing it that way but one of the things that is really good about that is there are environmental conditions that can change in the overworld it will unlock like an alternate version of the level so if in the overworld you channel a stream going through one of the books that is one of the levels then that will unlock a flooded version of that level and so you've got like an alternate version to play and every single level in the game has got an alternate version which is quite cool and that's 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 quite good fun but yeah it's 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 good it's really good Minty, what have you been playing? I've just been chugging along with Dragon Quest. I am at the point where I can fight the final boss. So I'm taking the time to just knob around the world map and just complete all the side quests. So your adventure need not come to an end. Nice. It's all right. I mean, it's a very good game. Not a huge fan of silent protagonists. It's going to be sad. It's rarely done... Well, I think it's very easy to see it done in something like Zelda, where it's obviously done well, and people go, oh yeah, it's just silent protagonist, that's a thing. But it's, it takes a lot of work to do that well. For When I played Astral Chain recently, yes, that was the one downside to it, was that it was a silent protagonist, and it felt weird. Yeah. Felt very silent. <laughs> yeah, he felt like he wasn't saying anything, as opposed to... Just being silent, but still emoting. Yeah. I tell you what, should we just cut to the chase and get straight to the rankings? Yeah, great. Let's do it. Starting this week, we have my game. Would you like to know what my 59th favourite video game of all time is? I do. I do too. What can I say about Mario Kart 8 that Minty hasn't already said and that isn't already totally obvious? It's the best in its series. It's one of the best racing games of all time. It's one of Nintendo's finest games, and it is absolutely jam-packed with incredible content. All obvious, though. All agreed. Like many series, there's been new mechanics and features introduced with every entry. Uh, We have motorbikes and the ability to sort of ride up the sides in Mario Kart Wii. We had gliders introduced in Mario Kart 7. And whilst the new zero gravity functionality in Mario Kart 8 didn't really change the way you played in a huge way, because everything you did would always stay the right way up for you. It did, however, allow for some truly awe-inspiring course designs. Particular favourite of mine, the Electrodome. Yeah. Tasty. Which was an epileptic nightmare of a disco (laughs) course. Just (laughs) totally hypnotic. (laughs) Also, Sunshine Airport was a lovely return to the world of Super Mario Sunshine. And the feeling you get when you take flight at the same time or land at the same time a plane is flying overhead is absolutely exhilarating and it is a fantastic example of course design that isn't necessarily just about the course itself and it adds so much to it it's also brilliant to see the return of classic mario kart tracks see what the new twists are on them now i mean literally in some cases with all the zero gravity upside down bendy wendy stuff which was great i loved it particularly when something quite vanilla like just a mario circuit would load up looking pretty pretty standard pretty 
dare I say, boring. Oh. And then Lakitu flies around before the race starts, and all of a sudden, half of the track just rises up out of the ground. Yeah. And it's just like tilting upwards, and then you're. It's very (laughs) exciting. It made every track and every race feel like a real event. I mean, I've never been to live racing, but I imagine it feels something like that, but with less bananas or more. I I don't know. Potassium is good for focus. Less turtles, though. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, maybe. Who knows? Who knows? I have absolutely no reference point for that. Back to introvert racing. A couple of favorite tracks from previous games that featured here were TikTok Clock from uh, Mario Kart yeah. DS yeah, it's a nice one. and Melody Motorway from Mario Kart 7. Spicy. Both brilliantly reimagined. <laughs> as well as the fantastically crescendoing Grumble Volcano. I love Grumble Volcano. It's a great level. It is great. Mm. It's so good. Also, a forgotten gem from Mario Kart Super Circuit on the Game Boy Advance was Ribbon Road, which was brilliantly and very cleverly reskinned as a Mario vs. Donkey Kong March of the Minis-themed level, which just worked. It worked perfectly. It was a lovely level, yeah. Very yeah. clever. Very clever. Mm. very simple very moving Mm. (laughs) (laughs) it's always great to play on the Yoshi circuit from the GameCube and that has been a a retro track that I'm pretty sure has reappeared in every Mario Kart game since I think it is the most solid and steadfast of all of the tracks and it's probably the closest I'd feel to playing at home were I to play competitively Mm. also returning from the GameCube was the total free-for-all of Baby Park just seven simple oval laps on a short course and anyone could win at any point it's It's just brilliant. Absolute carnage, isn't it? Baby Park. I mean, it was also great to see the fan favourite N64 Rainbow Road track return, although they obviously decided against having the gargantuan 10-minute-long track be as long as it is in the original and decided instead to split one lap from the original into three segments, like they've done with some of the new tracks from the last couple of games. And it's a very sensible move, as the original to be honest, feels more like something out of Euro Truck Simulator, but without the ambient (laughs) environment and real-world radio stations to keep you entertained. It's a great experience, but not here, please. Not here. It's not this game. The only problem is that the improved design of the track in Mario Kart 8 now makes me genuinely want to do three full laps of it and for it to go on for, you know, ten minutes or whatever. But there we go. So let's talk about the DLC. Oh, great. Yes. It's easy to forget that this was among Nintendo's first foray into the world of DLC, as it had typically preferred to offer, air quotes, complete games, rather than risk straying into the worrying trend of other games developers releasing half-finished games for full price and then charging players for cynical add-on content that was clearly intended to be in the game all along. But this is exactly what Nintendo do. They wait patiently, they develop diligently, and then when they do deliver, it sets a new standard for the industry. Oh, lovely. Stirring. No one could argue that Mario Kart 8 wasn't a huge and satisfying game on its own, and also no one could argue against the value for money seen in the DLC. Now, whilst we all could have lived without the faster 200cc mode added in, (laughs) I must say, the sheer chaos that this new speed unleashed on a race was utterly hilarious, and the carnage that ensued was verging on barbaric. (laughs) Much like if a bunch of coked-up teenagers crash a children's playground, tear the place up, 
probably throw some fruit around, maybe some small explosives, leave a total ruin in its wake, and not recall any of it. Friday night. Back when I uh, played this with my ex-partner on 200cc, she responded by saying, uh, this is what real war must feel like. (laughs) (laughs) And she's right. Yeah, it's hell, isn't it? (laughs) But the thing people were really looking forward to in the DLC was the series branching outside of the core Mario games for the first time with the inclusion of Link as a character, a Zelda course, an Animal Crossing course as well. And these were a wonderful addition to the game. And of course, who can forget the absolute apex of any DLC released in any video game? The Mercedes-Benz real-life car pack. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I can't believe that carried on and we're still in the Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. It's ridiculous, isn't it? I was it? convinced that license would have expired and they would just bend it, but nope. Mm. Boot it up on the Switch, there's your Mercedes. <laughs> Joking aside, it was quite a fun little additional thing to have, but I mean, it just felt monumentally out of place. It really did. It, it opens all sorts of, of questions as well in terms of like, you know, the extended universe, as it were. Exactly. In the Mushroom Kingdom, you can go out and buy a Mercedes if you want. <laughs> That's what this game has taught us. And uh, equally, like, in Hyrule, there's a, there's a dealership down the road. <laughs> <laughs> and there is. Yeah. I'm sure we spoke several months ago about how branching out into neighbouring franchises could be the future of Mario Kart, because how can you possibly top the formula now after this game they're going to need to change it up and it is great to let your imagination run wild with what i believe we termed super crash brothers yeah you could imagine racing through talon 4 as samus aran maybe through the clouds of dreamland as kirby across a condensed version of kanto as a charizard over the back of a titan as shulk or through a brain as dr kawashima <laughs> <laughs> riding the neural pathways I think it's absolutely to its credit that it's a game that's famously aimed at a multiplayer experience and I can't even recall what multiplayer stuff is in the game I mean obviously outside of standard racing and I've barely played any of that it's I mean so comprehensive is the single player experience and so solid crew is its gameplay (laughs) that it made me not even care about sharing that with my friends as with most of the best wii u games it redefined itself as a switch game and i had no hesitation in double dipping for both the vanilla game and the dlc that i'd bought and playing through everything again and i've no intention of ever trading it in it is mario kart 8 it is isn't it very mario kart 8 very good. Minty. Yes. What is your 59th favourite video game? I'll tell you what my 59th favourite video game is. It's one that you've already liked. It's Mario Kart 8. <laughs> <laughs> so nice, I liked it twice. It's Link Between Worlds. Oh, what a great game. It had big shoes to fill, considering it was basically a sequel to one of the best games that has ever been put out on a console, Link to the Past, and it's does it It extremely well Mm. yeah yeah it puts those shoes on and walks around (laughs) (laughs) it's got a perfect balance of the familiarity that you get from the pretty much exactly the same overworld and the flip between the light and the dark world but then it also brings in this fantastic new story that isn't just zelda's been kidnapped by uh, Yuga, who is um, this game's Ganon. There's also the uh, the plotline that the dark world in this game isn't the isn't the corrupted golden land where the Triforce lives. 
It's a parallel world of Hyrule called Low Rule, which I believe that you mentioned. Great pun. Which, yeah, which had been destroyed by them breaking apart and destroying their own Triforce to stop it from falling into evil hands. But then that, of course, meant that the land itself fell into just, disrepair. Just, just fell into disrepair. Mm. So while you're trying to rescue uh, the Seven Sages and Princess Zelda and defeat Yuga, you've also got Princess Hilda of Lowrule desperately trying to save her kingdom by subtly manipulating events so that uh, she can steal Hyrule's Triforce. And then, of course, we have our dear rabbit friend, Ravio. Oh, yeah. Who convinces her... Not to do that. I haven't played it in a while, so that might be... Um, Broad strokes, but yeah, yeah. to be honest, that's about what I remember as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic balance between uh, the familiarity of the old and just a real updated feel to a classic game through all of the new features, the new graphics. Mm, oh, yeah. All the places you had to go, all the temples and all the dungeons. They were roughly in the same place. But there were some subtle tweaks which kept you on your toes. So even though you're like, oh, I've got to, uh, yeah, I've got to go to the Eastern Palace. That's, yeah, I, I did that before. That's fine. It was just different enough that you couldn't be like, Haha, I did this in 1992. We're all glad that that put pay to your smugness. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the Mayamize, lovely edition. Mm. Like that's that sort of thing. When you've got a hundred things to collect, that can get tedious very quickly. Yeah. But what they did to make it manageable and fun, they had, uh, they had them squeak so that you could tell when they're nearby. Yes. And the way that you collected them was divided into maybe four or five different ways. You could pop them off the wall by merging into it and then coming out into 3D and taking them with you. Oh, yeah. Some you had to dive for somewhere under a rock. Hidden in a tree. Hidden to... in a tree that you had to bonk with your, with your quick shoes. <laughs> <laughs> You've, uh, you've streamlined the process by making them easy to hear, giving them just a few ways to gather, but also divvying up the map into regions so that you could see how many were left in each region. Oh, collecting done right. Really meeting you halfway. Yeah. Thank you. So I really like the interaction between the two worlds, um, being able to slip in to the dark and the light worlds through uh, cracks in the wall that gave uh, that gave her a, a very a puzzly element to exploring the overworld my favorite addition was a completely new addition well there was two of them actually two completely new additions one stealth section excellent stealth section as you're trying to get into the Palace of Darkness. I have no recollection of this. Ah, uh, stealth maze. It's got a... Yeah, yeah I mean, really stealthy. Yeah, it's... <laughs> I didn't even see it. <laughs> <laughs> it stuck with me because it has uh, excellent music. And also there was like a battle tower or like a gauntlet where you could very near the end game. Once you've upgraded all of your stuff from uh, Mother Maya Mai, when you've rescued all of her wee bairns, <laughs> you could go to this tower and upgrade the last bits of your equipment. I can't, I can't remember if you upgrade your sword there, but you definitely get an extremely powerful lantern. I do remember that. Yeah. yeah. And that was excellent. That's just a really nice addition, which I think most games should have just a big fuck off gauntlet where you can just lay waste to loads and loads of enemies. So yeah, uh, Link, Link Between Worlds. It's had incredibly impressive source material and probably the finest example of a sequel that's ever been made oh high praise mm. that is high praise for a high game in hyrule 
Oh. Fantastic. Agreed. I can't believe it's going to place even higher on Chris's list. (laughs) 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 Number one with a bullet. Chris has barely played a Zelda game. Moving on, lastly, we have Christopher Dow. Can you please tell us about your 59th favourite Zelda game? I can. (laughs) Right, okay. I find prevailing trends in video games really fascinating. And I talked about the modern indie boom back when I mentioned Braid a few months back, that that was kind of like at the start or the the ground floor, as it were, of, of like more tiered development that we've got today. So we had the distinction between independent developers, the kind of double A games and the, and the triple A games, like the, the kind of big um, marquee releases, as it were. What I haven't really discussed that much, though, in any of the entries so far, is that same time had these kind of weird parallel prongs between console development and mobile development. And although I've mentioned console games, obviously loads of them, and I've mentioned some mobile games, I've never really said about the correlation they had on one another from that period forwards. And it's interesting to look back now and think that the Xbox 360 and the PlayStation 3, that generation was essentially running alongside the big rise of smartphones. So that was when, you know, iOS on on iPhones really took off. Android devices had got a lot stronger and all of a sudden smartphone gaming was massive. So inevitably they kind of started to influence each other as, as you had devices in your hand that were more powerful and you had home consoles that were more interconnected and linked to you. You had this kind of relationship between the two. Eventually, or occasionally rather, sometimes you'd have like a good nourishing cyclical relationship between the two where you might have like the positive elements of one influencing the other. In the early days, especially, it was far more like this idea of kind of a a human centipede where each coupled carriage is just like defiled in turn and defiling its its direct (laughs) follower just ad infinitum like a, a shitty Ouroboros. Um, that Mate, you- I'm just going to pause you there and remind you that people are listening to this first thing on a Monday morning. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you had issues like ported console games to, to mobile just didn't work with digital D-pads or buttons without tactile feedback and vice versa. Mobile games were often too simplistic to just be chucked straight onto a console. Yeah. So they had a weird kind of transition point where, where it couldn't just be moved across one for one as it were and i mean the less said about kind of the creeper microtransactions uh, from one to the other the better yeah. and, and i mean needless to say that the games industry at the moment is still essentially at war with itself as, as how best to monetize and and sustain the kind of race to the bottom they've got but in amongst all this in amongst all this kind of like weird transitional rubbish and gumph you had companies like popcap games hmm. and popcap were an outlier i think in that they were like a mid-sized developer originally making primarily kind of casual games for the PC that just happened to transition really, really well as premium titles to iOS and Android because they were generally quite simple in how you interacted with them that then weirdly found their way back to consoles with a new home on like Xbox Live Arcade or WiiWare or the PlayStation Network. So these kind of simple games had jumped from platform to platform and really didn't lose too much in that move. So, I mean, when they were big, like their kind of real commanding run of the casual sector back then, they chucked out games like Feeding Frenzy in its sequel, uh, Astro Pop, Bookworm Adventures, Zuma, Heavy Weapon, all really, really good games, as well as a couple games, including today's entry, that made it onto my list. So, you know, I, I have real, real kind of soft spot for PopCap developed games. And I think it's nice to look at them and think that they're not just good games. I think they're legitimately great games by almost any, any metric. So they're kind of attractive, playful games. They're, they're stuffed with content. They're all built on the classic simple to pick up, but challenging to master sort of framework. They move between platforms really effortlessly, you know, really, really nicely. 
And my game today, as my 59th favourite, is the fantastic Plants vs. Zombies. Oh, oh great. That, yeah. for me, was my gateway into the tower defence genre. And I mean, tower defence, at its heart, is a sort of offshoot of real-time strategy, in a way, that you've got enemies kind of arriving in waves. You're trying to prevent their approach by, by putting up defences that are meant to capitalise on the usually kind of deliberately winding paths of, of their oncoming barrage. And what Plants vs. Zombies did really well in terms of being this like gateway to that genre is they kind of did away with almost all of the, the traditional parts of, of tower defense in favor of something much, much simpler. So instead of these big wide open maps that you were kind of trying to figure out how, how the enemies were approaching, you were just given a five, five straight lanes, essentially, a, a straight lane play field with your base or house on one side, the zombies as the enemies approaching from the other, and as they traped slowly along these lines, you know, your garden as it as the playfield is segmented into a grid. So you plant up these little plants to either slow them down or take them out or whatever. All the while you're trying to harvest sun, which is the currency in the game, and managing that resource is vital in order to to keep your garden stocked up. Although quite disparate on paper, like the choice of plants and zombies as the protagonists and antagonists. It allows room for a surprising amount of character to the game, which again I think Popcap did really well to draw people into this sort of genre that they wouldn't necessarily have engaged with otherwise. And I read that the director had said that the original design document was trying to go for an aesthetic that had like a gritty element whilst also being sickeningly cute. Yeah. And that works really nicely. The, the combo combo works surprisingly well. So you've got, you know, the plant towers, like I said, as like the pea shooter or walnut or cherry bombs that all have this uh, like little cartoony look that are, you know, nice to look at. They've all got good character alongside kind of the macabre shambling zombie horde. But because of that, it's got real kind of good comic illustration to it. And the game's got a real levity that helped it stand out against what was often like kind of po-faced design, I think, of, of tower defense generally. Mm. So it wasn't like industrial. It wasn't kind of medieval styled. It was just something silly and a bit of fun. And I mean, it's odd these days that when I played it initially, I never would have thought these characters would have been a good fit for like a team-based multiplayer shooter in the vein of Overwatch. But we're literally at the moment seeing the launch of the third Garden Warfare spin-off game, like a first-person shooter based on these characters. So, you know, what do I know? <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. it's been things that have, have you know, uh, spread out into the, the zeitgeist in a different way. Yeah. I mean, what I like about this game as well, aside from the fact, like I said, it's, it's simple, it's, it's engaging, it's nicely made. It's, you both know that I like rhythm games. And whilst generally that means it's games that are literally about rhythm, I also think it applies to games like this that have like a, an internal rhythm to like the gameplay loop itself. Yeah, totally get that, yeah. And and it's really satisfying that you you start having the system where every stage you start, you harvest sun, as it were, to, to build up your, your money reserves. Uh, you're planting these weaponized plants in nice sort of symmetrical rows, or at least I always did. It's like starting with like the low value ones and then moving up in ranks kind of thing by ascending value and power. You vanquish the wave of undead as they walk in and then repeat. And it's it's a really addictive loop yeah. that's um, always punctuated by like a frequent reward. And it's always just fun. It's, it's again, it's very, very fun. Even, even when things don't go so well, it's not really a game you get frustrated with as much as you just think, well, you know, I can try something different next time because it's never asked you to plan something as, you know, layered or intense as like traditional tower defense games or, or strategy games. It's, it's a lot more approachable. So the game itself, Plants vs. Zombies, found tremendous fame, like far beyond what I think they would have anticipated at the time. First on the PC, which obviously had like mouse input, a mouse driven interface. Then it did really well on some touchscreen devices. And I think it worked really well, especially on kind of larger tablets when they started to arrive shortly afterwards. 
and for me though it wasn't until it got that home console port to the xbox 360 like back to what i was saying in the beginning about this kind of interplay between mobile and console that i sat up took notice downloaded it and then chucked in probably i don't know 40 50 hours to 100 percent the game and the whole time i think it's stuff like the, you know the simple lane and playfield setup, the convenient palette of having very visually distinct towers in in the form of these plants. So it's a very readable game. Yeah, you've got the helpful visual visual tells of like zombies will lose a limb or its head to denote its current health. So again, it just takes away the need to have like a little health bar under them or, or extra stuff that could kind of obfuscate what you're actually looking at. I mean, it's a game that's that's built to work on platforms regardless of whether you have the precision of a mouse or or a touchscreen. As a testament to the game, Plants vs. Zombies is just as at home on the PC as it went on to be on the Xbox where I played it, as it went on to be on handhelds like the Vita or the DS, or even like phone releases that it had weird release on things like the Windows Phone and Blackberries of the time and stuff like that. I think it's, it's a near-perfect distillation of what tower defense can offer as a genre, and one that, to be honest, almost all proceeding games after this would have had to take notes from. Because this this made it something that was far more enjoyable to anyone that hadn't considered that as a genre to play. Uh, it's just a really cracking game. And it's unfortunately a bit harder to get hold of these days. So I don't think the original release is still on iOS. I have a feeling it's kind of no, it's not. It's disappeared in favour of the second, which is free-to-play nonsense. Exactly. And unfortunately for me, it meant that I, I yeah, I, I started playing the second one and was like, nope, this is not for me. Yeah. After having poured hours and hours and hours into the first game, like, like, like you, and... And exactly like you said, it was my gateway into was it was that and field runners, which yeah. were my gateway into tower defense and kind of because I've said before about how I don't really like strategy games, yeah. and certainly not real time strategy games where I'm just really stressed out. But it presented it in a way that made me able to think like that. Yeah. My enduring memory of playing Plants vs Zombies is when I used to live in Newport and I worked in the valleys. I had to get a bus to work every day, which took about an hour and a half, and same on the way back and. I would just sit and play on games for the for the whole time. And one time I was just playing on Plants vs. Zombies for however many weeks I was doing that for. And I remember at the when we got to Tradiga, a man who was sat behind me said, um, what is it you've been you've been playing nonstop for this whole journey? You haven't looked up from your phone once. Um and I was like, oh, it's Plants vs. Zombies. It's a good good game. Good game. <laughs> There was a better anecdote in my head. Never mind. Story time with Jonathan. (laughs) So there we have it. Another three games. First, we had Mario Kart 8. That was good. Thank you. Then we had Link Between Worlds. And finally, Plants vs. Zombies. If you've enjoyed this episode, or if indeed you've enjoyed any of our episodes, please do like and subscribe. Leave us a review. Share us on social media. Tell your friends. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Facebook if you search for Our Three Cents. You can get involved in the conversation that we're having there, or you can ask us a question that you might like us to answer on a future episode of the podcast, or you can reach out to us individually to challenge our opinions on anything that you've heard. You can find me on Twitter at Jonathan Dunn. You can find me at Chaz underscore Hodges. And I'm at Clement underscore Boo. And please do join us next week for our 58th favourite video games. Oh, it's a good one. Is it? Mine is. Don't care about yours. <laughs> <laughs>